We're going to look at four aspects of this story this morning, four aspects. The authority of Jesus' word, the process of experiencing new life, the choice to trust, and Jesus, our substitute. Any text that we read as we go through John, there's all these different nuances, all these different angles that we consider. As I have bathed myself in this, bathed myself in this passage really over the last two weeks, right? John 11 is one incredible story about Jesus lazy, raising Lazarus from the dead. And so as I've been in this story for the last two weeks uh, and think about kind of landing the plane this week, these are kind of the four aspects that just come out to me. And so let's start by considering the authority of Jesus's word, verses, primarily verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus deeply moved again, and I, and I love this. If you remember from last week, if you were here last week, Jesus cares about what's happening. In the, in the preceding verses, as I mentioned, Mary and Martha come to Jesus. They notify him that their brother is sick. He dies, and, and Jesus delays. He lets them grieve for a while. He, he lets them question. He lets them wonder. He lets them wait, and we talked more about that last week. So if you're in that season of like waiting and grieving and wondering why Jesus won't come right away, why he won't answer your prayers the way that you are asking or in your timing, last week's sermon kind of addressed some of that. But what we see here is that Jesus does come. He doesn't perpetually leave them in their grief. He doesn't perpetually leave them in their suffering, in their pain, in their wondering, and in their waiting. He comes, and when he comes, he's moved. Their emotions become his emotions. Verse 35, look at it with me. It says, Jesus wept when he came to the tomb and, and he experienced and saw the emotions of Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters, and the others around who were deeply impacted. They were grieving by Lazarus's death. Jesus joined them in their grief. He wept. And verse 38 tells us that he's moved again. He, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And so we see this humanity, humanity in Jesus, this friendship, this, this love, as I said last week, the phileo love, the familiar love, the, the, the casual type of... Here's, a, here, here's what I didn't say last week that I wish I would have. Jesus not only loves you, he likes you. Isn't that amazing? Like, we talk about agape love in the church, and this is just kind of a recap of last week. I want to get into the authority of Jesus' word here this morning. But just to recap, many of us, we live our lives as though Jesus just puts up with us because we're despicable sinners who keep doing the wrong thing over and over and over again, and I'm not faithful enough, faithful enough I'm not obedient enough, I just can't quite measure up. I'm glad that he loves me, but there's no way that he likes me and what we see in this text is that Jesus likes his followers. He's their friends. Your personality, your wiring, the way that you process things. Yes, there's, there's brokenness and there's sin and there's wounding. And Jesus understands all of that. And he likes who you are. He created you to be the way that you are when you're in him. He likes you. Phileo, love, friendship, love. And Jesus comes to the tomb, and he's among friends, Mary and Martha, and he's deeply moved because Lazarus is his friend. He likes these people. And in that, verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. He begins now to express his authority. 
right? So we're seeing Jesus in this passage as friend, a human, on a human level, also Lord, he's God, he has a type of authority that you and I don't have, that the Roman officials don't have, that the Jewish leaders don't have. He says, take away the stone. He gives an order. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. They, they did what Jesus told them to do. He's not a Roman official, and he's not a Jewish leader. He doesn't have positional authority. He has relational authority, which goes much better than positional authority. Some of the younger generations, especially of Christians, like they're, they're running away from the church and they're frustrated with the church because pastors, elders, leaders sometimes use positional authority without building relational credibility, without really having relational authority. And, and church, I want to invite us into this story, into this reality that relational authority always trumps positional authority. Now, we also need to learn how to submit to positional authority. If you have a job and you have a boss, like you ought to, they have authority over you in that structure, right? But the best bosses, they understand that relational authority trumps positional authority. And so we see Jesus, a man who doesn't have positional authority in the eyes of the religious systems and the political systems of his day, having this incredible relational authority where he says, take away the stone, and they do it. Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. What an incredible prayer. And what's true for Jesus is also true for us. Jesus paved the way. God always hears his son, Jesus. God always hears the voice of his sons and daughters, you and me. And Jesus here is saying, I, I think that you heard me, you always hear me, but I say this on account. And so what he's saying is, I, di I didn't even have to say this out loud. I didn't have to pray out loud, take away the stone. I could just internally pray that, take away the stone. I have the authority, God would do it, it could be done. But I said this out loud so that those who are standing here would see it happen. If you remember throughout the book of John, John is constantly showing specific signs and statements that Jesus makes to help give us belief. There's seven signs in the book of John and seven statements in the book of John that John captures Jesus doing and saying in order to help our belief. If you remember John chapter 20, he says, all that I've captured in this book is here so that you would believe. And so we even see that here. Jesus is, is specifically speaking these words so that those who are listening, those who are paying attention, that they would have their minds blown by the power of God, by the authority of Jesus' word. He says, um, I said this, I'm in verse 42. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. As I delay, and then as I ultimately show up, and the words that I say, and what I do in the situation, it's specifically designed to build faith, to grant belief. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
Jesus is showing his authority, and it's not just power, right? His words have power, but I specifically wanted to use the word authority here because there's people who have power, and power is kind of a, power is like a force, right? It, the, power is, is not something that's necessarily granted. Power can be taken. Authority, in the origin of the word, it's something that is placed upon another. It's given to another, And so Jesus has authority over life and death. He has power to raise the dead, but his power is used with good, righteous authority. Jesus' other miracles, when he calms the storm on the sea, do you remember what they say? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? What type of authority does this have? does this man have and specifically in his words and his speaking and it harkens back to the beginning of the story genesis chapter one god said let there be light god said let's divide the land and the sea god said let's divide the day and the night god said i'm going to create man and woman in my image and likeness God speaks, and at the power of his word, life is created. And here in this story, we see Jesus speaks, and at the power of his word, new life is granted. He has authority. He's he's giving them a practical picture of what he had already taught in John chapter 5. Flip a couple pages to the left. Look at John chapter 5 with me. John chapter 5, verse 24 through 29 Pastor Matt preached this a few weeks back, uh, probably a few months back now. And uh, let me remind you of this, what, John had, what Jesus had already taught that John had recorded. John 5, starting in verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And remember this story of Lazarus moving from death to life. Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Lazarus, come out. A dead man hears the voice of the Son of God, and he receives life. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority. There's this idea of authority again. He has positional authority, Jesus does, in the heavenly realms, right? Like I said before, Jesus doesn't have positional authority in Rome or in the Jewish religious system. He doesn't. He doesn't have positional authority in the eyes of the world. He has ultimate positional authority as the Son of God, who God has given him all authority. Look at verse 27 again. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. The Son of God, Jesus, the Christ, the one who's talking. Because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus here is saying, I have authority. My words have authority. He has already taught this. And now in John chapter 11, he's giving us this picture of authority. He's showing us what he has already taught us. All who listen to my voice will move from death to life. 
And again, we have to keep pointing this out in John. He's using a physical reality, Lazarus' death, to show a spiritual and eternal reality, eternal life. Right? He raises Lazarus from the dead in this story. Lazarus actually, so he uses physical death and he gives Lazarus physical life yet again. But as we know, Lazarus eventually went on to die. I said this last week, those of you who missed it, they found his bones in 1874 in Bethany, the town that he's from, in a box with Mary and Martha. He still went on to die. So Jesus' point here isn't that your, your physical mortal body that you have here now will go on to live forever. There is a resurrection coming, which he says in John 5 and in John chapter 11, that's his point, this physical death results in eternal life for those who listen to my voice. And that eternal life, that abundant life, starts here now in the spirit, but there will be a physical resurrection in the future. And so here Jesus is showing them in John chapter 11 what he's been teaching them. Lazarus, come out. He speaks, and it happens. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, Again, showing his, his relational authority, right? He has positional authority in heaven, not on earth, but they are submitting to him as an authority because of the relationship that they have with him. And he says, unbind him and let him go. And so they do what Jesus tells them to do. And this moves to the second point, the process of experiencing new life. Now, the purpose of this story is not to give us a metaphor for our Christian life. However, there is a beautiful metaphor here for our Christian life. And keep that in mind, like, as you learn to read Scripture and wrestle with Scripture and, like, listen to different sermons and teachings and talks, like, there, there are allegorical things in Scripture. Some things are just allegorical. Some things are metaphorical. Some things are literal and real. This, we believe at our church that this is a real story that, that really happened, that Jesus really raised Jesus from the dead. This is a historical account of something that happened. And so the purpose of this story is to show us Jesus' authority over life and death. That's the purpose. That's the point for us to see him as God and trust that he can also raise us from the dead. Physically in the future, he will. He will give us a resurrection new body. Also spiritually now, metaphorically now, right, that he can move us from death to life. And so there is a beautiful metaphor in verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many commentators have picked up on this beautiful metaphor for you and I in our process of experiencing new life. Charles Spurgeon, a, a preacher centuries ago, said, To me, it is one of the greatest glories of the gospel that it does not require weeks and months to quicken men and women and to make them new creatures. Salvation can come to us at once. So we see here, Jesus speaks, Lazarus, come out! Insert your name. Come to life. Come out. Salvation is granted. Forgiveness of sins is granted. It is paid once and for all. Forgiveness is yours. But Spurgeon goes on to say, this is a beautiful thing, that it doesn't take days or months or years for salvation. It can come at an instant. 
At the word of Christ's command, Lazarus was wholly raised. However, he wasn't yet wholly free. See, here is a man living in the garments of death. The grave clothes were altogether congruent with death. But they were much out of place when Lazarus began to live. And many of us live like this. The Spirit of God is in us, and he has moved us mightily from death to life, yet we still live trapped in our grave clothes, unable to enjoy liberty in Christ, nor enter into communion with him. This is where many commentators pick up on this imagery here, that, that, that we've been set free. Many people who follow Jesus as Lord struggle to know him as friend, struggle to let him close enough to unwrap the grave clothes, and struggle to let other people close enough to unwrap the grave clothes. Jesus' word has power to bring us back from the dead. And yet, it's also Jesus' word that reminds us that we are dependent on the community of God's people to help us experience life without grave clothes. Isn't that interesting? Jesus could have gone to Lazarus and taken those grave clothes off, and yet he chose not to. He told the people standing around, and Jesus wasn't afraid to, to see the de decay, touch the disease, to get close, right? He's the one who modeled touching the leper, healing the sick and the lame and the broken. But it seems to be something unique going on here where, where Jesus invites the community around Lazarus to help him shed his grave clothes. I was talking about this with a friend this past week. And in a text, she wrote this, and it's just pure gold. So I'm just going to read this text that she sent me. She said, I think about this passage often. We as Christians, alive in Christ, are called to help in taking the grave clothes off one another. The stinky self-preservation garbage that has wrapped around us. Jesus' command to unbind offers a picture of the redemption process. Jesus does the heavy lifting, and yet there is still an untangling of the human condition. The community is the cleanup crew. What level of intimacy is required in removing grave clothes? Lazarus was buried for days. As, Mary, as Martha said, there will be an odor. Many of us spend years trapped in our self-preservation grave clothes. Grave clothes become part of the skin that we live in. Drugs and alcohol and sex and slander and lying and shopping and gossip and arrogance and stubbornness and greed and envy and debt and the need for approval, acceptance, affirmation, whatever it is. Start removing these and there will be an odor. Do we live a life of grace and love worthy of being on the cleanup crew? Or do we shame and judge and wrap people in church clothes rather than removing their grave clothes? What an incredible reflection on this passage. And so we're seeing the process of new life here. It's a messy one. Jesus grants salvation. He brings the dead back to life. But learning to live out our new life, that is the Christian journey. That is the process. And it involves fits and starts. It involves challenges and trials and struggles. It involves repentance and removing the mask and, and, and risking being known and getting vulnerable and letting other people get close enough to you to smell your decay and your death. So here's the process 
of new life, Jesus grants it with the authority of his word. You have it. If you're in Christ, you have it. You have new life. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to beg for it. You don't have to plead for it. You have to say, Jesus, I want new life. And boom, you have it from death to life. But the process of experiencing that new life, that means letting people in. That means letting people see your warts and your failures and your stench and your decay. It means trusting others enough to let them get intimately close enough to you to help you unravel the grave clothes. And then there's a turn, right? Once that happens to you, you also, you should be on this cleanup crew, this community cleanup crew where Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And so I think many people in the church, we haven't let others close enough to us to take off our own grave clothes. And so, the, but, but we know that we're called to serve others. And so we're trying to take other people's grave clothes off, but we're disgusted by their grave clothes, right? We're like, because it's disgusting. Sin and shame and the, the stuff that we suppress and hide, it, 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 it has a stench to it. And if we've never let somebody close enough to us to, to smell our decay and to see our decay, and let me remind you, actually, if we're in Christ, there isn't decay. There's a new man, a new woman underneath that. But these clothes, they carry the stench of our death. And so if we haven't let somebody close enough to unbind us, when we try to unbind others, we do it as religious, pious, judgmental people who are like plugging our nose, like, ah, you're a mess. Because nobody's seen our mess. And so there's this kind of two-pronged thing here. We need to let others close enough to us to help unbind us. And then as we learn to be set free, and this imagery is all over Scripture, right? It starts in Genesis chapter 3. What do Adam and Eve do after they disobey God? They run and they hide and they cover themselves, right? They were naked without shame. I don't know if the new heavens and new earth will be that way or not. We might have covering. They were naked without shame, and now all of a sudden they experience shame, and they run and they cover and they hide. All throughout Scripture, this imagery of clothing and hiding and, and self-preservation from God and others. And here we see this beautiful imagery where Jesus gives us new life, and we are dependent on others to help us experience that new life. And then others depend on us and community and trust and cleaning one another up takes time. I have to think that Mary and Martha were there unwrapping Lazarus because they had time with him. They knew him. They loved him. They were willing, right? And some of you know this. Some of you have cared for a loved one on a hospital bed. Some of you have cared for a loved one when they're, 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 they're bodily faculties were giving out. And it's not pleasant, but you do it. You clean up the mess. You love through thick and thin because that's what love does and that's what Jesus invites us into. Seeing one another in our vulnerability and helping one another to remove the grave clothes so that we could experience the new life that Jesus' authoritative word has granted us. Amen? The third portion here to consider is just the choice to trust. And so pick it up again in verse 50, uh, 45. 
Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. I've said this many times in the Gospel of John. I'm going to say it again. That word believed in Greek, it, it's pistis, which means to trust or to have faith. I personally don't like the word believed as much because I'm, at least in my mind, believed. It's like a mental assent. It's like, check it off. Yes, I believe Jesus is God. Yes, I believe I'm a sinner. Yes, I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. That's belief, right? And you can say, the scriptures say that even the demons believe, but they don't trust. And so this biblical word for belief, it's more than a mental assent. It's a trust. And so I prefer the translation trust or faith. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, trusted in him. They trusted his word. They trusted his work. But some of them, okay, so, right, so this, there, there, there's a choice of trust here. Some see it. Some experience it. Some are saying, I'm willing to step out and trust somebody else with my life, with my good. I, I'm willing to trust someone else to be my authority. Some trust. Verse 56, 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone will trust him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place in our nation, and isn't here the rub. This is the rub right here. The choice to trust Jesus or the choice to trust our man-made systems. That's what, that's what they're saying. The Romans, this political entity, this, this world power, we fear them and what they could do to us. And so in fear... I'm going to trust myself. I'm not going to trust Jesus and, and, and his movement and what he's doing because he's not fitting my expectations. He's not showing himself to have like religious power and authority or political power and authority. He's showing himself to be a good person who cares about people, not like a dictator who cares about nations. And, and so I, we can't trust him because if we trust him, we're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our prominence. We're going to lose our prestige. We're going to lose our comfort. We're going to lose our own control, which, by the way, is always an illusion. You have no control. They have no control. And, and, and that's the rub, right? That's the tension, this choice to trust. Some people see what Jesus is doing, and we're told in verse 45 that many of them trusted Jesus. Many of us are here this morning because we're learning to trust Jesus. One step at a time, one day at a time, one more, one more little opportunity for me to trust him. But we also feel this tension that the, the Pharisees and the council, the chief priests and, and, and the religious people felt. If we let him go on like this, if, it, if, it, if it's out of our control and out of our granting authority... And out of our power, everyone will trust him, not us. They won't follow our rules and our, and our creeds and our control around life. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The rubber meets the road right here. 
The choice is either we trust in Jesus or our hearts are hardened as we trust in ourselves or other people, man-made ways. So my question for you this morning is, what are you letting go of, surrendering independence? I'm like, have you seen Jesus? Are you seeing Jesus in such a light? Are you hearing his authoritative word? Are you, are you stepping into the process of experiencing his new life and in that willing to let go and to trust him, to take another step? to remove another layer, to take off one more wrapping, to let somebody else a little bit closer, to trust that Jesus is sending that person to get closer enough to you to unwrap the grave clothes? Are you trusting God and his process of sanctification bringing you into wholeness, bringing your new life into an actual experience? Or are you, are you trying to hold on to control? What are you holding on to as you fear the loss of control? And we see these two responses here to Jesus. One is to keep stepping out in trust. The other is to pull back and to accuse him because we, we can't give up control to somebody else. We've got to protect. It's just fascinating, this dynamic going on there. And we need to make sure we don't rush over that too soon. I would encourage you this week to say, where, where, where am I growing and stepping out and trusting like the people who saw this happen? And where am I in danger of being like the Pharisees who, who out of fear want to ratchet up their level of control? They don't want to lose their place in their nation. What are you afraid of losing that might be the pressure point, the, the pain point where you need to let somebody in to remove some grave clothes and to remind you that you have nothing to lose in the gospel. You can lose your life. You can lose your freedom. You can lose your comfort here and now in this lifetime. And it doesn't matter because you have it for all of eternity. Jesus, with the authority of his word, brings dead people back to life and he grants eternal life. And so don't get stuck in the process of experiencing new life because we're afraid of losing our place in our nation. And then the fourth piece here as we move on and close out this text is that we see Jesus as our substitute. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. <laughs> the guy with power. Ultimate power, right? The high priest just telling these people, you know nothing at all. Some things never change, right? the dynamics of leadership and following and like the world's structures and systems of power and authority. They're just filled with ego and sin and domineering. And here we see Jesus, the one with ultimate authority. He uses that to grant life, not to condemn. So Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not the whole nation should perish. They're concerned about their comfort, their kingdom, their power. And here Caiaphas is hatching a plan. No, we're not going to give Jesus enough authority in our systems, our religion, our politics, our everyday life that will lose our place in our nation. We're going to kill him and make an example of him so that we can keep our power and prestige, and comfort, and nation. He says, it's better that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. It's amazing. God is using this, this, this corrupt religious leader to prophesy what's about to happen. Verse 52, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The true children of Abraham, Jew and Gentile alike, scattered around the world, around the continents, in different languages, different cultures, coming together to worship God. Caiaphas prophesies that Jesus will die for the nations. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Here's the reminder for us this morning. Jesus is our substitute. He dies in our place. Caiaphas predicts this death. And it's ironic that years later, they would actually lose their place in their nation. That a Roman ruler would come in and, and destroy the temple, desecrate the temple, tear it down brick by brick. And that the Jews lost their place. They lost their nation because oppression always happens in world systems. Political, national, and religious systems are filled with corruption and greed and power. And what Jesus has done is he steps into this and Caiaphas predicts, well, this man's going to die and then we can keep our control and our power. What happened is this, this man died and they still lost their perception of control and power. See, it's always a perception. They lost it. But in what happened is that Jesus died for the nation. They still lost their place in nation, but they gained something greater. Those who had looked to Jesus, those who had faith, those who had trust in Jesus' authority and power, those who were willing to let others remove their grave clothes, they found new and eternal life in him. Amen? They didn't have to preserve what they've created. They didn't have to live life in their grave clothes because Jesus died in their place. And not only did he raise Lazarus from the dead, this is a precursor for him himself walking out of the grave. He overcame sin and death in the grave. He is our substitute. He steps into the place of death that we deserve. His mortal physical body died. Yes, he's immortal and mortal. God, man, we can't figure that out. But he steps into that place. Jesus, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He is our substitute. As Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, flip over to John chapter 10 with me. Pick it up in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. He's our substitute, the one who steps into our death, our danger, our disease, our grave. 
verse 16. And I have other sheep also that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Not the Romans, not the Jews, not the Gentiles. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. That you had authority to lay your life down and you had authority to take it up again. That you had authority to speak, Lazarus, come out. And at the sound of your voice, he moved from death to life. Lord, I pray that this morning we would be reminded that you move us from death to life. I pray that we would receive your invitation to allow others close enough to help unwrap, unbind us, to take off our grave clothes, that we would move towards others and help to unwrap, unbind them as we help them to remove their grave clothes. And Jesus, I pray that we would celebrate you as the ultimate substitute. You stepped into our place. You died the death that we deserved. You lived the life that we are incapable of living. And you overcame sin and death and the grave, raising to new life and guaranteeing new life for those of us who are in you. And so may we find ourselves in you this morning. As we come to the table, would you nourish us and remind us of who we are?